Thanks for tuning in to Inspiring Women. I'm Lori McGraw. Every week I speak to inspiring women who share their stories of how they are making an impact on the world. This week, I'm speaking with Dr. Suchi Sarya. She is a prominent healthcare expert in the areas of machine learning and AI. And you're going to hear from Suchi talk about all this excitement in terms of what's real, what's hype, but also what is the real opportunity with AI in healthcare. She sees a future where there is the opportunity for an explosion of diagnostic tools that can aid clinicians in swift detection to a diagnosis, reducing the time to get to improved outcomes for patients, getting rid of a whole lot of waste in healthcare, giving clinicians back time, therefore helping with burnout and a whole lot more. Again, please do subscribe to Inspiring Women to hear more of these stories, but now let's hear from Suchi. This is Inspiring Women, and I am Lori McGraw, and today I am so excited that I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Suchi Saria. Now, she is the founder and CEO of Bayesian Health. She is a bona fide, absolute expert in AI and machine learning. Bayesian Health is an AI machine learning platform company, which is really aiming to help physicians make better decisions at the point of care using AI and machine learning. We're going to talk about that. In addition to her many peer-reviewed articles, her many years of research, and many of the things that she's done, she has been well-recognized for her work in AI and machine learning. She has degrees from Stanford University. She is a uh, professor at John Hopkins, and she also is advising the FDA on AI and machine learning. And Suchi, thank you for being on Inspiring Women. Thank you so much for having me, Laurie. Okay, well, let's go. So we always get started on inspiring women, talking about sort of like, what are you doing right now? So Suchi, I mean, beyond the work that you do at Bayesian and the FDA and Hopkins and on the speaker circuit and, you know, hoping Mickey, uh, keeping Mickey Tripathi like on task at ONC, which I appreciate, um, what does day-to-day look like for you? Why don't you give us a sense of what your day-to-day is? I think I wake up at about 7 a.m. Actually, really, to be, if I was being super honest, I probably wake up at 5.30 a.m. every morning. And very naturally, my brain fills up with thoughts of like all the exciting things that are happening in AI and health. And I know this is going to sound totally cheesy because I feel like I wish I had a life where I could think about more things. But it's just so exciting. There's so much progress going on in AI. has been for the last 10 years, really, more. And then the use of it in digital health, it's like blown up. People are just so thrilled and see ways in which it can be used. So I guess my early morning often starts with, you know, there's things I've been thinking about that's been on my mind. I've rested for like six to, you know, five to six hours. I wake up, I'm thinking about like, okay, what am I going to conquer today? What needs to happen? You know, and then from there, I'll spend like 10, 20, 30 minutes with my husband We'll drink coffee together. Uh, and very often my meetings start from about 7.30, 8. Uh, it goes, my schedule is quite brutal. Um, I love it though. Work is play, play is work for me. So it really doesn't feel like I'm working very hard, but I'll often have, you know, eight, nine, 10 hours of meetings. A lot of these meetings are creative, problem solving. People are coming to me with all sorts of problems, whether it's, um, on the technology side, they're trying to solve something and don't know how to think about from Bayesian, my team members, or, you know, trying to think about 
you know, on the validation or study design or clients and talking to hospitals and health systems on challenges they're facing and how Bayesian can help solve it. All of the above, just like learning from all sides really is sort of, and then eventually uh, the day sort of, you know, I close my emails and at some point have dinner with uh, either friends or my husband or, you know, we go out, it's New York City. Every day is an adventure in New York City. So, you know, you're, uh, it's like a vacation every evening, you know, you get to experience some part of New York City and think, and I travel a lot. So some days it's travel and, uh, you know, watch some comedy show at night. I love comedy. It's very <laughs> fun. It's very creative. It's often storytelling. And then, and that's the end of the day. I'm, as I'm saying this, I'm realizing I really need a little bit more diversity in my life. <laughs> well, <laughs> you are such a, you are so focused on technology and we're going to talk about obviously AI and machine learning. And, you know, I will just say um, myself, I have a degree in cognitive science in the way back machine and took an, you know, my first AI course, um, you know, back then. And it was just a very futuristic idea and only sci-fi movies. And now I think we, I don't actually think we're at the height of the hype cycle, but we are definitely starting to get there, but I think it is due to what we're really seeing, which is progress and actual work, and particularly in healthcare where there's so much opportunity. So let's go there because that's where you are absolutely an expert and you started your work at Bayesian in the area of sepsis. So maybe just let, let's talk about Bayesian. Um, so what does Bayesian do? What is an AI machine learning platform company um, and how can it impact healthcare? Yeah, absolutely. Let me first start with, um, you know, why the name Bayesian? Because I'll sometimes get asked, like, you know, by technologists, is it Bayesian because of using Bayesian techniques? Um, what is Bayesian? Um, so for physicians, you know, sometimes they've been in, you know, when they've been in school, they've taken classes and they remember sort of the statistics and the gimmicky things they had to learn. And so it brings back memories, right? So the whole idea with Bayesian thinking is when you, the way smart humans make decisions is, you know, as you get data, you integrate these different types of data. You have some notion of trust. You trust some things more than others. And as you get new data, you may, you may make a forecast, but, you know, you update it over time. And you're continuously thinking about both what you think it is, but also as new data comes in, how to do the update. So that's sort of optimal decision-making, right? Everything I'm describing here is how clinicians, physicians, nurses, like caregivers are ideally in this very rich data world should be operating, are operating. The very best clinicians are often operating this way, right? They're looking at what's happening, what have we seen thus far, therefore where should I collect more data, therefore what should I integrate, and therefore how should I update my differential diagnosis in order to help make the right decision for this patient. Bayesian is essentially operationalizing that in this insanely data-rich world. In the last 10 years, we went from almost no data to huge amounts of data to a place where it's painful. You know, there's data and information stuck in notes from this encounter, prior encounters. How do you bring that all to life in a way where, you know, you're also seeing sicker patients, you're having to do more with less, you know, one in three nurses are leaving the workforce, you are burned out, like, and, the solution has to be some form. I mean, isn't it amazing if there was a way technology could bring all these different types of data together, intelligently parse it, surface the right set of information in a way that is extremely easy to use and understand, and then bring it to life 
in the context of the decision you have to make. So suddenly it's saving you time. You know, you were going to try to think through it, go click, 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 click to the MR, identify, synthesize, then try to make a diagnosis, then treat, and then you're trying to like make sure. So like, let's take sepsis as an example. In sepsis, we know one of the most promising avenues for improving outcomes is early detection and timely treatment, right? right? The problem is, and so here's a great example. And, you know, back in 2015, we sh- like, you know, when I first started working in this area showed you could use machine learning with all the data that exists in the electronic health record to be able to pretty accurately identify early patients at risk. So if you can do that, now suddenly you can have, you know, systems that are parsing all this data, identifying precisely and as, ac- you know, accurately surfacing it within workflow, clinician sees a flagged patient, they can open it up, they can see why you flagged them, they can then evaluate, treat, and give you know the relevant items like treatments like lactate and uh, blood culture and antibiotics, source control, any kind of escalation that needs to happen, which makes it then really, really easy for them to, you know, for them to do the right thing, furthermore document it. And so what where that does, does is saves do- them time. Where does the AI and machine learning come in? And so just to go in the way back machine, I've been in healthcare a lot longer than you. And when we started working in the EHR business, we would always talk about that, you know, every month it seemed there was seven years worth of peer reviewed journals that physicians needed to, you know, assume, you know, into their intelligence to make the best clinical decisions. The EHRs were going to solve that, which they obviously did not. We were not talking about AI. We were not talking about machine learning. We were just talking about electrifying, you know, the documentation systems, which is what the EHRs um, became. So what is specific about machine learning and AI that makes that optimal sort of like accumulation of data at the right point in time now available? EHRs certainly did not solve that problem. Yeah. Great question, Laurie. So what is the IML good at? It's good at, and first of all, there are different types of AIML, there are different types of tasks. So very simply, you know, people are seeing chat GPT as an example, and I want to make sure people understand, right? Like chat GPT was created as a way to generate new data. So it's taken a huge amount of data, synthesizes to learn what kinds of words go together. And then the AI is optimized to be able to spit out the best next word given the last you know, paragraph that exists. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so what it means is it constructs a lot of sentences. It's not grounded to be factually correct, Mm -hmm. right? Because the whole thing it's trying to do is just kind of learn about, it's kind of like a very intelligent uh, person who's just watching you say things and then mimicking you. So that's one type of AI. In this kinds of AI we build or we have to build, it has to be clinically, you know, grounded, Relevant. And that's where the huge amounts of papers you said comes in. So during the development process, we're taking data from millions of patients. We're identifying, let's go back to the sepsis problem, right? We're identifying patients who had sepsis versus who didn't. We're looking at what the onset time was from when the earliest indicators were obvious to clinicians when they started treatment. Now we can learn from that data what were the earliest indicators that we can identify that separate the cases who had sepsis from the ones who didn't? And we can even bring in very nice knowledge that is well understood in biology and medicine around how different indicators are expressed or medications might express indicators and build that all into a system 
that is able to incorporate known knowledge and learn from data in order to start accurately identifying and learning. And the cool thing about this approach is now, let's imagine you had a million data set, a data set with a million patients, you know, all sorts of scenarios in which patients showed sepsis, like, you know, maybe it was older patients, maybe it's patients with chronic kidney disease, maybe it's patients who just had surgery, maybe it's patients who have, you know, burn patients or trauma. You can start to learn much more precise, accurate, population-specific biomarkers that bring these data together. And so as a result, they can be much more precise. They can learn over time as new data comes in. You can query to understand the why, make it easy. And then one of the most important things is there are types of AI where it's closed, you know, uh, like a closed box. What I mean by this is it's fully autonomous. It's basically doing its thing all on its own, entirely start to end trying to give a diagnosis. The area where I think there's enormous impact to be had is when we can augment our frontline clinicians, which means we can assist them in doing their job a whole lot faster and a whole lot better. So what I mean by this is when we're able to parse all this data and present it, they don't have to go click, 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 click. They can quickly see what was relevant, but confirm and evaluate on their own, which yeah. now both saves them time, but also makes sure they don't miss patients. And yeah. that's really valuable. And then do the documentation that is necessary, which AI can totally assist with. So it saves them just a huge amount of time. Yeah, and I think um, just to, you know, in terms of the area of sepsis, people may or may not know this, but, you know, sepsis, the onset of sepsis is um, life-threatening. It is fast-moving. And if you don't detect it early, I just lost my mother-in-law and sepsis was the ultimate thing, you know, beyond a well-lived life and old age. I know that you have a family member and this is part of your early um, work and interest in solving these problems, but that early detection is so key. And if you think about that frontline clinician, the amount of sort of data Data that is available to them for them to parse through all of that. These systems are confusing. They're large, they're complex. And if you talk to any physician, they will tell you exactly how many clicks to get to anything of importance to care for their patients. So this is exciting. And I think certainly the paper that you put out, Suchi, with your um, colleagues at Bayesian in Nature was groundbreaking in terms of really showing us the efficacy and opportunity um, with AI. But we also know that there's a lot of hype right now Again, I don't know if we're at the top of the hype cycle. Um, chat GPT has given us all a lot of, and I actually have a question from you for chat from chat, chat GPT for the one time when it didn't crash and I could get on it. Um, but, uh, you know, where are we in that? What are the key things in terms of the opportunity? Are we really, how can I tell what is hype? How can I tell what is real? What should I look for as a consumer, as you know, somebody, a receiver of healthcare or looking at different data systems out there? Yeah, excellent question, Laurie. First of all, I think there's excitement and there's hype. So the excitement is the good part. The hype is what sort of like derails, you know, actual real development, right? So one thing that's really, really cool is I actually think we've made so much progress since the Watson days, in terms of the core technology itself, the application of the technology itself, that's allowed us to demonstrate real results in peer-reviewed studies, like rigorously conducted, that demonstrate efficacy. We also have like a host of new investigators, entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. who deeply understand healthcare and deeply understand technology. 
Because healthcare is just not a kind of field where you as a deep technologist can come in and break, make breakthroughs. You, you know, it's just too complex. There are too many stakeholders. You have to understand the pain points, have deep, deep, deep empathy to be able to build solutions that really solve problems rather than make ex solutions that are distractions or extraneous or useless or a waste of time. And so I think there are basically very foundationally, we're just seeing more of the right types of teams. Like historically people have thought, you know, the big tech goes understand AI. One thing that's very interesting is if you look at pretty much all the biggest results in AI, they've not come from the big tech goes. They've come from small groups that were experts and super focused, even very simply like OpenAI that demonstrated ChatGPT as an example, you know, those were fresh grads, like fresh out of school who founded OpenAI, you know, several years ago. So right. where I'm going with this is the first thing I would look for is not excellent marketing, but good teams where you have people with deep expertise in the tech and deep expertise in the domain. They really understand the problem space. They really understand what to build, but they also really understand the technology. The reason the two are important is because Essentially, the space is evolving so fast, you want teams that can go in and live problem solve. Even if they have products, you want the products to evolve and keep pace. And for that to happen, you really need teams that understand both sides. So that's really like the number one place where I see screw ups. I frequently see tech teams completely diminishing the problem domain, not having the necessary focus to really excel at it, which in healthcare is so essential. And then I also see healthcare teams without the deep technical expertise or the grounding to be able to really deliver the products you need. So right. that's really sort of one of the biggest ways to identify. And then second, track record, right? Like look for, you know, not just the right story. Everybody can hear and tell the story. The question is, have they, have they proven themselves? Do they have assets that demonstrate that they've really solved hard problems and proven that it works? In digital health, I think there's a, you know, reproducibility crisis. Like, we often, I mean, for me coming from academia as becoming an entrepreneur, what was shocking is how much digital health takes place through a marketing deck. Like people put up a deck and then they start selling. And in the way we constructed Bayesian, you know, day one was we, when we raised funding, we went stealth mode. We built a technology, we built a platform. We did like research partnerships with really, really good groups where we proved it out in prospective real world studies not just small studies, but really large scale real world studies that really show you in rigorous ways, clinical validation, financial validation, you know, stakeholder pain points, we get it, it works. Yeah, then and some of the commercial. Those, pain, those stakeholder pain points, just to sort of, you know, put a plug, figuring out how to put these great new technologies and opportunities in the appropriate workflow for the clinician and that for so many of these wonderful entrepreneurs out there is where brick walls are hit pretty hard, where technologies don't get absorbed, life-saving potential technologies because they're not appropriately built into what are already complex workflows and then become burden. I'm sounding a little bit like, you know, sort of a talk track from my AMA days, but um, still so important not to introduce new burden with the opportunity. Okay, Suchi, let's go back a little bit to 
you. Um, so you clearly have a handle on what the opportunity is and you're making progress, particularly in the area right now of sepsis. I know that you are looking at other disease states and opportunities um, there. Where did this interest come from? You know, did it, did you originally, was just technology all the time, just healthcare because of your personal experience with your family member? Um, where did it all start for you? I think, uh, well, my interest in technology just started in AI in particular when I was very, very young and just saw the, you know, it was kind of crazy in retrospect that the younger version of me was so fascinated by it. But I love the idea of building smart machines that could think and, you know, take data and parse it to be able to do intelligent things to make, you know, my life easier. I'm sometimes a very lazy person and I want somebody else to help me do things and really help do other. So it was fa the interest originally started from the math and the science and the tech and the possibilities. But it was around 2007, eight, when I got introduced at Stanford to the possibilities in healthcare. As I started to learn about electronic health records, Stanford was just implementing Cerner and Epic. It became clear that, you know, we were, you know, it was really like what felt like just hearing the stories as an outsider of like what data we were going to be collecting and the scale at which we were going to be collecting. It felt like crazy to me how we could operate without needing more intelligent technologies that could allow us to use all this data to make better decisions. So that was sort of really my entry point. I, it was also around the time when I was just going through a personal crisis where I felt I'd spend all my life doing hard things. And I wanted to move from just doing hard things to doing things that really mattered. And this is, you know, many technologists, like, you know, we often grew up being fascinated by hard, but at some yeah. point it was just sort of feeling like, got it. I've shown, I, I think I know how to do hard. I've, I feel like I've done it in a variety of different contexts. I don't need to prove myself anymore. I need to figure out my compass for how do we move from hard to very important and meaningful. And that was really the pivot for me starting to work in healthcare and realizing how crazily broken it was, how much need there was for technologists who truly could dive into the domain and complexity, understand the complexity and think from the ground up in terms of what solutions to build. And then, you know, moved to Hopkins, did a lot of work there in AI, ML and healthcare and many different service lines, you know, neurology, autoimmune diseases, um, critical care, quality, safety, lots of different areas through massive efforts with NIH, NSF, DARPA, CDC, uh, most recently the FDA, but started to really, and while I was doing this work, uh, sepsis as an example, disease area is one of like many clinical areas where early detection could really change the way, um, you know, we change outcomes. So was doing work in this, and then it quickly went from being theoretical to very personal when I lost my nephew to sepsis. You know, he was in India in a hospital. I get a call and I learn that, uh, you know, he's in septic shock. Mm -hmm. And in my head, I was, it was just crazy. I don't know how to, um, anyway. It's but a hard I think call to receive. It's a horrible call to receive and to not be able to actually do anything and just to know that there's care needed immediately. And I think it was, that's when it went from being like, couldn't I help the world? I want to help the world to like, damn it. What am I doing? I need to make this happen. It's not just about like great sounding ideas. Mm-hmm. 
let's translate it and show it because I know it can be done. And so we, you know, went from there to constructing the platform, constructing a team. This is really hard. There are at least 30 teams that have died on the hill of trying to solve sepsis. I know from the very earliest papers I wrote back in 2015, there's been upwards of 800 papers written in the field following some of that early work we did in AIML and sepsis. And, you know, many teams have sort of, you know, you understand model, but you don't know behavior change. You don't understand workflow. You don't understand treatment. You don't understand how to get adoption. There's just so many pieces to it. And yeah. so just bringing it all to life together has been just such a difficult, challenging, but also rewarding experience with the results that came out last year that you referred to. They were groundbreaking. They were so exciting to see. And then most importantly to me, like sepsis was just sort of the front runner for these vast number of problems in what I call, you know, software driven, machine learning driven software as a medical device or software based right. diagnostics. We've right. had chemistry based diagnostics, hardware based diagnostics. I think there's going to be a huge emergence of these software driven tools that are going to be integrated within workflow that will aid in making real time patient specific risk assessments that'll accelerate our ability to identify patients at risk and put them on the right trajectory, improving patient outcomes, simplifying clinician lives, and then dramatically saving us useless costs right now, where we are spending a huge amount of time in a reactive manner, treating all sorts of things that don't need to happen in the first place. Yeah. Well, Suchi, just, I, I, I do want to say that is um, a compelling, optimistic, very inspiring view of what is possible. I do think we're at the beginning and, you know, I, it just, I, I really do appreciate you underscoring how hard this actually is, because I think that the layperson, you know, in the hype cycle marketing mode of where AI and ML um, actually are, believes that, you know, it'll all get solved overnight. But again, the complexity of healthcare and the things that you're pointing out that need to be done are just um, critical. I also, um, I I'm glad that you are a comedy fan. I think there's a little bit of comedy in your comment that you um, are just lazy. I didn't hear any of that when you were talking about on um, your day. So, that's a little bit humorous um, humor for me. A couple more things I want to close out on you. So you've given us a really great view in terms of what's possible. And Asuchi, uh, I appreciate the work that you're doing. You're ground, you're breaking ground in a way that is important for the entire industry. And there's a lot more that of people who will learn from you and follow the way you're going about the work. And so I want to thank you for that because it is important. And I too am hopeful um, that we can get to those types of outcomes that you're looking for. A couple more rapid fire questions questions. Um, with all that you do, give us perhaps a professional low point that you learned from, from that changed the trajectory for you. Oh my gosh. I feel like I have a professional low point on a weekly basis. Um, I don't know. It's so much like managing teams is just so hard. I've been in scenarios where I feel like the vision is so clear to me. What needs to happen is so obvious. It's like, how do you get people to see it? How do you bring people along? That's a skill. That's an art. You know, there were times when I remember this back in 2020, I think, when I was building up, you know, the basics of Bayesian as a team and feeling like, oh my God, there are all these amazing humans who want to work at Bayesian. They have so much experience. We hired some of them, but for some reason, we couldn't be effective together. And I started to think about it and I was like, is it me? Is it the way I'm managing it? Is it the way I've brought things together? And it was like, 
really, really hard to be in this situation where you feel like, wait, we've solved like super impossible problems, but we don't know how to solve like, you know, human problems, but turns out ultimately the human problems are are hard. (laughs) Human problems are some of the most important problems. So I feel like that was an example of just feeling, you know, it was very hard, you know, it was like a hard time with like the pandemic and isolation. And you feel like you're doing such important work that really needs to come to life. And it's going to fall apart if like you don't have the right people in the room and they're not feeling inspired and energized. And it was a real moment of challenge. And you know, it was great. You know, I, I had some amazing coaches who came along and helped kind of learn and observe and teach me things to think about, but also how to think about hiring. So that was like a really interesting experience. Um, I mean, I feel like pretty much every moment of growth has started from a moment of feeling hopeless. And, um, so, and I have to, I have to say even years later, I'm continuously in this moment where like, Um, I remember when I was in school, like in college, where one of my very, very, very dear loved advisors at the time, who was like an early pioneer in AI, I was working with him, like 16 or 15 or whatever. And he basically was like, I don't think you should go to grad school in grad school. And I was so disheartened. I sat there and I was like, is it because he doesn't think I'm smart enough? Is it because I can't do it? And, you know, why is he thinking this, right? Like, it was like so difficult to hear it. But lo and behold, like, you know, all my time, like, you know, I have a endowed chair at Johns Hopkins. I was one of the youngest uh, professors to receive that and have received a ton of awards in the field. And all I'm really saying is I feel like despite, like, it feels like there's always this low moment and the thing you have to do is to find the high moment to, you know, just figure out a way to get over it, you know, and then figure out who's going to help you. The low moments do fuel growth. Um, Suchi, this is such a great conversation. I so appreciate you sharing all of this information um, with us and the audience as we close out on inspiring women. Um, maybe not advice for other people, but I just love to hear, you know, in the next five to 10 years, what is your optimistic view of what is possible in healthcare? You know, I honestly think that it's possible for us to like, we're continuously every day talking about how providers are burnt out, practicing healthcare is healthcare delivery is so hard. I am really, really excited. Like, you know, my personal chart starts with x-axis is time is y-axis is clinical impact had. And so my real hope is, you know, not just in like sepsis, but across 10, 15, 20, 30 areas, we'll get to a place where we will have measurable impact and how these kinds of AI-driven technologies are doing early detection, timely improvement in outcomes, reducing diagnostic errors, saving clinicians' time, reducing healthcare waste, right? I mean, it sounds, it's very measurable. It's very doable. This does not need to be futuristic. I think the work is happening now. I can already see results in many, many areas. And I can see a generation of new entrepreneurs who are really excited about this and are making it happen. So I don't really see any barriers other than just doing it one foot in front of the other. Let's do it guys. Every single day, starting at seven 30, ending at whatever comedy show is on in the evening. Suchi, thank you so much. This has been an excellent conversation on inspiring women. I have been speaking with Dr. Suchi Saria and Suchi. Thank you so much. Thank you, Laurie, for having me so much. I really appreciate it. This has been an episode of inspiring women with Laurie McGraw. 
please subscribe, rate, and review. We are produced by Kate Cruz at Executive Podcast Solutions. More episodes can be found on inspiringwomen.show. I am Lori McGraw, and thank you for listening.